contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Hey, boys and girls, welcome to another edition of the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Got a special guest, a longtime friend, leadership in union, NBA, NFL. Dominic Foxworth is with me. Uh, I really wanted to get him on because he just published a really thoughtful, provocative article on the undefeated, ESPN's The Undefeated, about unions, and maybe it's time to end the unions and have them become trade associations, and maybe they're no longer serving their purpose for players. As you guys know, I talk a lot about this issue, about labor, about player rights, about money, about collective bargaining. So here we are. Welcome, Dominique. Really glad you could join me here. I'm so happy to be back. Uh, we had a conversation, I guess it was probably about eight or nine months ago, the last time we were on a platform together, and it was one of the more fun uh, conversations I think I've had since I've been in this media business, honestly. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I appreciate it because uh, I always enjoy smart people that really have thoughts that are backed up by experience, by credibility. I think there's not enough out there. Uh, and you bring that, and uh, I think you and I have similar thoughts and sort of similar credibility to talk about these kind of things. I wanted to sort of get right to your your piece on the undefeated this week. Um, tell the listeners that, who don't know your sort of background in union leadership, obviously sure, the NFL so I, and, and I, the I, NBA I, as well. Right. I played in the NFL for a while. I was elected by the players to the executive committee. Um, for four years, I guess, and then I was president for last two years. From there, I went on to uh, business school. After that, I took a job as the chief operating officer of the NBA Players Association, so I had a little sports switch there. We lived in New York for a short period of time, and and my wife and I wanted to move back down to D.C., where home is, and I got an opportunity to to kind of go work for the undefeated and start working for ESPN and doing those sorts of things, so I, I took that opportunity. But um, I, I wrote in the piece, and it should be clear to all the listeners that there have been few things in my adult life that I've devoted more of my time and other resources to than the advancement of players' interests. So while I am a member of the media now, one of the things that one of my guiding principles is to remind myself that I am a player and that those things are important. And I bring that up for for two reasons. One, because it informs this piece, and two, because so many former players, and I, I try to call them out as much as possible, so many former players that go into media, like, forget what it's like to be players, and they start to sound like media members, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily an insult, but they, uh, when there's a player who has been accused of something, and I think the Lucky Whitehead stuff in the news right now is, is an interesting backdrop for that, but when there's a player that's been accused of something, so many of these guys jump on TV and, and talk about how the guy needs to be suspended for four games or eight games or out of the league forever, and they just forget about due process. And the mm-hmm. same is true when there's a guy who's who's not playing well necessarily. Those former players forget that they were once players and uh, and that there's so much more context to what's happening than just one guy giving up a touchdown. So sorry for that little bit of tangent, but that those things are guiding principles in my career and are important to to me and important to explaining where I'm coming from in this piece. Yeah, I think we think alike because coming from, I was an agent and then 10 years with the Packers and management, I do see it as well, both of us now in media, sort of the group think. You know, you, 
mm-hmm. you you see a player get in trouble, then the group thing comes out. Oh yeah, bad guy should. And it takes a special person to get up there and say, well, wait a minute. You know, there are two sides to every story. Let's look at it. We know the agents can have an agenda. We know the teams can have an agenda. We just got to figure out what's the right side here. And I, I appreciate you saying that because I see it as well. The, the people sort of go into groupthink and then with Twitter and that pinball mentality just rattling around the pinball machine, it just happens that way. So I, though, I'm in accord it's, there. It's, I mean, you, one thing I wanted to follow up on your career okay. in terms of getting involved at first and then con- increasing that involvement on the mm-hmm. union side. You know, I've been around a lot of players, and this is kind of what we're just talking about with the media. They kind of say, well, you know, the union, we got a guy. I'm not really interested. I'm focusing on football. That's kind of bigger stuff. I don't want to get involved in that. What spurred you as a young player to get involved in union and collective interests rather than your own individual? Yeah, so I always kind of sought out some more um, uh, intellectual engagements outside of football. But coming uh, heavily involved in the union wasn't something, wasn't one of those things that I sought out. It kind of found me, or, or more specifically, uh, Rod Smith found me. He's uh, okay all-time great receiver for the Broncos. I was a rookie right. in Denver, and um, I think he saw something in me, and and he, without me asking, he said that he was the team rep. He said I was going to be the alternate the next season. <laughs> and uh, and as you know, it's a democratic process, but if Rod Smith nominates you in the Denver Broncos locker room as the alternate, then it ceases to be the all that democratic. Right? Yeah, It's kind of like uh, I, I was um, – handed that role and then when um rod moved on i moved up to the rep and and once i got a little bit of a taste of it i was engaged one of the the interesting things is that i learned or uh, from my own experience is that growing up everyone wants to be in the nfl no one even knows what the nfl pa PA is nor do they want to be in it or do they care about it but once you start learning the history of it like you should more want to be a part of the NFLPA than the NFL because the NFLPA is the reason why you the players make the money that they do today, the reason why they have health benefits and, and the reason why they can um, they have a pension. And those things, the things that, uh, that really impact your, your life, so uh, those are the things like free agency. It would not exist without the NFLPA. So it, it, it's not something that's glorious or people are excited to be a part of, but once I started to learn, I became much more proud of being a member of the NFLPA and being a part of the leadership of the NFLPA than I ever was of being an NFL player. And when you took on the role, Rod Smith left, and you were you were the uh, rep for the Broncos, then you started getting involved in more collective meetings with other reps, and then all the way up to uh, union exec council, union president. Is that was where was the path there? Yeah, that was it. So as an alternate, uh, there's really no difference between an alternate and a rep, the exception of technically the the, the rep has the voting rights at um, the at the uh, rep meetings. But there's normally something you discuss. So from the very first time I was a rep, I was down involved in all the meetings. And then when their kind of side committees created I was young and single and um, didn't really have much else to do, so I got involved in everything I could get involved in. And and um, the the players in the union noticed that. And so when it was time, when some people retired and uh, cycled off of the executive committee, I ran and um, 
for executive committee role where there's only 10 of those and then the 11th member would be the president and uh, I ran and kind of um, proposed that the executive committee was dominated by older guys and dominated by star players and uh, they needed some equal representation of a guy who was a third round pick who was in my early 20s and and uh, represented a, a group of uh, the, the um, player body that wasn't represented in the executive committee so then I got on executive committee and continued to do the same thing, just get involved in as much as I can. And that's when we went through the lockout and, and I was uh, at all the negotiation sessions and really involved in that. And then after that was over, that's when I, I ran for president and, and uh, was elected and then uh, retired and moved on to business school. Yeah, and I don't want to spend too much time on the 2011 agreement. We can talk about that in the next few years as, as we head towards another one. But your impressions, because it kind of leads to your article about negotiating with ownership, the obvious leverage that they have, the power that they have, and specifically that agreement, because having been in management, me, uh, in 2006 for the prior agreement, it was very clear, uh, almost from the moment the ink was dry, that owners wanted to claw back on that agreement to get a better agreement, which came out in 2011. So, Without getting into specifics, I'd like to, you know, hear your impressions generally of the owner's positions in bargaining and really wanting to claw back the deal that was there in 2006. Yeah, so I think, I mean, you, you kind of characterized their position well. Like they, they wanted more money. We wanted some health and safety concerns met, which we did. We did get get met. Obviously, you don't want to have to give up any money to get there. But I mean, this goes to the core of the article: is that the players don't really have any sources of real leverage. Any sources of leverage that the players have uh, have been undercut by them having short careers or by um, the government affording uh, antitrust exemption to the NFL mm-hmm. in many different cases. So. Um, people, people often, and again, this is, it's all two members of the media bashing the media, but, uh, it does frustrate me when people in the media or when players complain about their financial situation in, in football or how their contracts aren't, aren't big enough. Uh, many people will just say, well, blame the union or they, uh, they blame D and while D and I and all of who are involved certainly don't deserve to go blameless, but understanding what uh, it actually takes and what you are facing and how your strength comes from your ability or leverage actually comes from your Mm -hmm. ability to uh, convince, I guess, maybe the word or not necessarily convince, but it it comes from what your alternatives are. So you can't tell the owners or any negotiation. If you're in a, you're negotiating for a used car and you're in there and your car broke down, you need to get to work on Monday, you have no other way to get to work on Monday, and the car dealer knows this, then he's not going to be apt to move, and all the other car dealerships around are closed. Like, he has all the leverage. And if you go in there and you're like, well, I don't really need a car, but I'd like to have a car, there's a bunch of other car dealerships around, and you're really in no hurry, you slightly have some more leverage. And uh, sorry that I've devolved into this really weird car dealership analogy, but... (laughs) Uh, no words. Uh, trying to make it make sense for, for people to understand why the players don't have any leverage. And I think, sorry to keep rambling, but this is an important point, that people fundamentally don't understand negotiations. And I think it's mm-hmm. it's probably 
like, I don't understand what it is to be a surgeon. If you tell me how to perform some sort of surgery, I would say like, Hey, you get a scalpel, you wash your hands real good. You cut them open and then you cut some stuff out. Like, I'm sure there's a bunch of little intricacies to it that I'm missing out on. However, people have from watching TV or movies or whatever, they think that good negotiators pull off their great negotiating skills by, um, some playing hardball or doing a good, good cop, bad cop routine or whoever has the best like in-room theatrics somehow gets, like that's not how negotiation works. Negotiation is about negotiations is not what happens in that room. It's about all the things in the years leading up to that room to create leverage. Cause once you're in there, you can say and do whatever you want. Like you can negotiate in Spanish, but uh, if you have leverage, then you're going to get what you want. And, the case in this situation is the players don't really have much leverage and don't really have uh, the the time horizon or the resources to create the type of leverage that they need. And the, and the owners have all that leverage, which explains what happened financially in the last deal, frankly. Yeah, and I agree on negotiations, having done so many on the player and the team side. Now, these are individual negotiations, not collective negotiations. It really comes down to who's most comfortable with the status quo and players in most situations – really just need what the team is offering more than the team needs them. I obviously it's different right. for superstars, but it's always about who's better off with the status quo, who's more willing to walk away, who's got more ability to say no. Uh, so again, I think I appreciate you taking us inside the room because what happens is owners look at players as what we all know, which is they're not going to be here that long and we're going to be here a lot longer. And when this player's three, four, five, six-year career is over, the Cowboys, the Redskins, the the Texans, et cetera, will be here. Um, yeah. I guess what and I they'll continue to, f- to own the team too. And I don't know. I I I, I consider Richard Sherman a, a personal friend, someone who I really like. But his comments about striking, while it's very true, you do get you if you are strong and you can withstand a, a lockout or a strike, then you are in good position. But it's just not logical. Like I broke down the math and, and the piece a little bit is 1% of $12 billion, if we assume that $12 billion was NFL revenue, 1% mm-hmm. of that is $120 million. There are 1,800 players in the NFL. So if we are willing to strike for an entire season to gain back 1%, that equals, uh, I think, $67,000 per player. So you have lost your six-figure salary and you gain 1%, and that is $67,000 per player. And for the owners, like it's three point seven five million per year into mm-hmm. perpetuity, and not even to account, not even to account for the gain in um, franchise values. Like what they are gaining is so much bigger and so much more worth, and so much, uh, and it's worth so much more to them that they are willing to fight for it. And also, you throw on top of it, most of the players are not uh, Drew Brees or Tom Brady with millions of dollars in the bank. Most of the players are going to have three-year careers, and this are, they've trained their whole lives for this. They're not going to be able to then walk out and get a comparable career. These are their prime yeah. earning years. They have three of them. You're going to give one of them away for $67,000, while the owners would be more than willing to give away one of those years if it meant tagging on an extra $3 million a year into perpetuity, which could equal billions of dollars if you calculate in the franchise value. Yeah, and I agree with you on Sherman. My problem with Sherman's comment, and I, by the way, I think he's a respected voice and should be involved more in these negotiations, is that saying strike now four years before the end of the deal is a bit of fatalistic. And maybe you agree with that. Maybe you agree that 
there's really nothing that leadership union can do to forge better gains than strike. I just think that's a pretty fatalistic view when we're only 60% through a 10-year deal and we're really not going to get into heavy negotiations for maybe, I don't know, two, three, four years. Um, well, I mean, in, in his defense, uh, whether it's fatalistic or not, I think that, um, like we both agree, negotiations take place outside of the room. They take place over the course of many years leading right. up into that final day and the final agreement. And I don't know if this is what he was doing, but staking out the position that the players are unhappy now is probably a smart thing to do strategically. Uh, maybe it has no impact on the owners or maybe it has some impact, but staking out the position that players want something back, if nothing else, it uh, makes the owners think twice about them themselves going to take something. It, it, it may be, and this is probably a bit um, idealistic and, uh, and unrealistic, but it maybe positions them in a point where they're like, all right, if we keep the status quo, then we're happy. Whereas they might be going into it if they thought players were, uh, were satisfied with the deal. They might be going into it thinking, well, we could probably get back another percentage or another two percentage, so percentage points. So I don't know if that's what Richard was thinking. And honestly, I'm not sure if that actually has that sort of impact, but that is the one defense I would put out there for him putting out a, such a kind of gloomy prospect this early. I will take, I will sort of play devil's advocate with you on a couple of things. One, we, we agree on people kind of looking at negotiations is very simplistic. One, I think union leadership has joined the group think about some of these NBA versus NFL comparisons, which to me is very simplistic. In other words, and, and what I'm referring to is this sort of group think out there about, well, rationalizing NFL salaries, NFL guarantees, NFL collective contracts with a math equation. Well, it's yeah. 53 versus, versus 15. Well, it's 16 games versus 80 games. To me, there you. I think that jumps into the sort sort of groupthink, simplistic math equation. First of all, on the games, that assumes NFL players just kind of show up for games. The season lengths are fairly similar, maybe six months versus eight months. And then as for the size of the rosters, I just, I just think that's really a. I mean, do major league base major league soccer players shouldn't they make more than NFL? Because there are a lot less of them. Should WNBA players make more than NFL? Or a lot less of them. I mean, to to make it a math equation about numbers, I think is really simplistic. You? No, I mean, I think that if uh, I am never opposed to math because it does not lie, but the problem <laughs> is going into these um, conversations talking about one side of the math and then not the other side, which would be the the huge difference in revenue, I think is, is the part that's right. unfair. And so I think the the other part of this that I think people are less likely to talk about is um, value. And right. sadly, the NFL players aren't being paid for risk. Like no one right. necessarily gets paid for risk. You get paid for value. And while we all accept that their game is more risky, I don't think anyone's going to argue that even a starting left tackle has more value than um, a starting NBA guard necessarily. So I think that is something that 
uh, is not talked about necessarily. And I'm not sure that it should be factored in, but it's something that, that does matter. But to your point, I don't, I'm not comfortable with just saying, well, there's more of them or there's less of them, so they shouldn't make more or they shouldn't make, or they shouldn't make less. Like, I think that is a bit of oversimplification. It would be disingenuous to say that it, it should not be factored in in some regard because obviously mm-hmm. league minimums, if there's 50 some odd players and everyone has to get the league minimum, that's going to take a lot of money out of the cap. But uh, the size of the cap should be bigger or maybe there shouldn't be a cap. Like There's a, uh, there's a whole bunch of other things that, to your right. point, that people are just accepting as as fact and just as uh, like a fact of physics, <laughs> like like these are things that uh, that have to be that don't necessarily have to be, and I think that's unfair. And I think unions, and this goes to the heart of your article. Here's the problem with sports unions. I teach sports law; it's always an issue. Sports unions represent Tom Brady, and they represent a hundred seventh round picks. Sports unions represent LeBron James, and they represent a hundred guys making minimum. They represent Clayton Kershaw, and they represent 100 guys make a minimum. These guys are not going to have the same outlook on what's good for them. But they're in the union where you talk about steelworkers or Teamsters or whatever it is. I don't know for sure. But I think except for seniority, they generally have the same interests, the generally the same outlooks. That's what's tough negotiating for a sports union getting everyone on the same page, and you talked about it in joining the group as someone who's a young player, kind of rank and file. Mm-hmm. And that really goes to the heart of your piece, because I guess my question to you is, without a union, of course you're going to have superstars blowing up into the, the range as we see in the NBA. What about the rank and file? And how do you protect them? And are they really the focus of the union more than the stars? Yeah, so I think uh, you're right, and those are there are quite a few differences between a kind of traditional union and a sports union, and I think one of those differences is that huge gap in um, value to the franchise that a Tom Brady and a I don't know anonymous rookie mm-hmm. third fourth round pick is like that's something that you don't have in the unions and in, in other unions. But I would also bring up um, to to the point of sorry, trying to make sure that I, I I make this clear as we go into this conversation about decertification because I don't think that I think decertification is a much scarier word than while it is a risky proposition, it's a scarier word than the actual future of it would be, mm-hmm. and I do think that you do go into a place where the players are. Or the, the league and the teams are exposed to antitrust law. However, the players right. will not necessarily be completely lawless. So uh, under the last time the, the, the teams or the, the union decertified and the teams had to come up or they lost the antitrust back in the 90s and they imposed a settlement. So the settlement that they imposed or they continue to play under rules that they imposed. And the rules that they impose then become, uh, and I'm talking to a lawyer, <laughs> sports right, lawyer. Right. About I teach sports this law. stuff, you could, the Marvin Powell case and the Brown case. Yeah, yep. you, there you go. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can explain these things much better than I can. But as I understand it, is the rank and file players do lose some bit of leverage, but the the league still can't completely leave them out the dark. So I think the uh, the people who would benefit the most from this is probably the top players, honestly. But it goes back to the question of, of value, I think, and I, I don't necessarily think that it's fair to 
And as someone who was not a top player, like LeBron mm-hmm. James is worth more than $40 million a year. Like that, that is just a, a thing that is true. And I think the overall um, amount that goes to the players would be higher. Whether the distribution would be inequitable, that's something for the players to figure out amongst themselves. But I don't think a solution to that is limit the overall amount that goes to players. I don't know if I, I know there's a long rambly answer, but does that make no, sense? No, I mean, I think to amplify that, again, we are not getting in the weeds on legalese, but collective bargaining is, is insulates NFL owners from antitrust. So right. we have a collective bargaining agreement. It's a labor exemption. Basically, if you go to court, anyone, Tom Brady or some seventh round pick, and say, I don't like a draft, I don't like cap, I don't like the restrictions on free agency, I don't like this, that, a judge will throw you out. Say, wait a minute, that's a collective bargaining agreement. And you can be a rookie and say, well, that was negotiated when I was in eighth grade. Well, that's too bad. Now, if you don't have a collective bargaining agreement, which means uh, there's no rules, but you do have a union, the judge can still say, well, you're under those rules because there's a union. Now, if you don't have a union then you're in antitrust court. And antitrust court will say, well, there is no labor exemption because there's no labor deal because there's no labor union. Uh, So I think that's what you're pointing out. I guess the question is, what would happen if you go to a court and say, we don't like the, the the, the franchise tag, we don't like the cap, we don't like this or that, um, this is what was the it's case in two thousand. Kind of uncharted territory right? to some degree, despite the fact that the that that the union was. Um, I, I guess we. I don't know how it would impact the. I don't completely know how it would impact the leagues today, though the NFLPA did exist as an association for several years in the in the nineties, and everything got better for players at that point. I'm not sure if things would be the same today. I think you are better positioned to to predict right. that than I am, honestly. Yeah, and I think what we're looking at 2011, as you point out in the article, is the the, the problem with a, uh, a decertification is a lockout. And the Court of Appeals said, well, we're going to keep this lockout going. And then you have the union looking ahead and saying, well, wait a minute, we do have this antitrust case, Tom Brady versus NFL, and we're going to fight this cap and everything else. But it was maybe going to take two years to get to court. Right. So then what do you do? And, of course, they made a deal. You made a deal. You guys made a deal when that was the, the Court of Appeals ruled that way. Right, which is part of the reason why you can't. And, and also the idea that um, the Supreme Court ruled that you can't, uh, that you can't uh, enjoin a lockout when negotiations are at an impasse is the way that I understand right. it. So that it was also judged to be a sham uh, decertification right. because we were negotiating and they thought it was just a leverage ploy. And so that's the reason why I think decertification needs to happen now is one, the time for the case, it gives you time for cases to make their way through court. And two, there's no way anyone can argue that it is a sham in order to create some sort of leverage in a particular no- negotiation, because I fundamentally believe that at this point, the value of a union existing may be higher for the leagues than it is for the players. So I think mm-hmm. that it's hard to argue that um, it w- we would not be far enough away from negotiations and hard to argue that the players would be better off under a union than association. So, I mean, I, 
I think that it's not, I wrote in the piece and I know that it's a risky move and many executive directors and we talk, we focus most on the NFL PA because that's where you and I have most of our experiences Mm -hmm. in, in football. However, I think it's a trend that's happening across all sports and it's something that all unions should consider, but I'm not sure that, uh, it's high risk, high reward. And I'm not sure that people want that. Whereas they might want to keep like things are life is good for professional athletes, given the history that they've that they've had so i'm not sure that when it comes down to it that executive directors would want to do it or that the players would necessarily want to do it because it it is high risk i'd like you to expand a little bit on that comment you just made because that's the heart of the piece i mean you're saying unions have proven to be better for management than for players and that's a strong statement well i think over the history unions have been better for players than management. I think we've gotten to a point now where it seems that the antitrust uh, protection that the unions provide for uh, management, it might be more valuable to to management than it is for players. And I, I mean, being exposed to treble damages and having your mm-hmm. whole industry be built a, a, atop um, labor restrictive rules and and a salary cap, and even for baseball, they don't have salary cap, but they have arbitration and a bunch of other rules that uh, effectively act as a salary cap. So if you remove the salary cap, like the idea that you can go into any other place of business and say, this is how much players can get paid, this is, or how much employees can get paid, like that's against the law. An idea right. that you can exist in, uh, as a monopoly and have all these independent teams essentially collude together to create uh, this market, like that's against <laughs> American law. And I think that being allowed to subvert federal antitrust law is hugely valuable. I can tell you every other business <laughs> in, in this country would really like the ability to uh, collude <laughs> with their competitors and and have a monopoly. So while I, I am union through and through, and I got into several arguments with people on Twitter about this, where it's like, I don't think, I think that the, the slow deterioration of the union in American society is a sad thing. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I am for unions and I love the accomplishments of professional sports unions over time, but things, uh, things change. The climate changes and people have to be willing to evolve or, I mean, it's, (laughs) I'm not far removed from business school as we talked about. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is how, and we see in, uh, in modern life all the time is how these, old incumbents are disrupted by upstarts. And I think you need to be ready to conform to the future and be prepared for the future or you become seers. And so I guess NFLPA or MBPA or MLBPA or NHLPA, like they'll never become seers, but we are seeing their power dwindle away. And losing a percent or two or 6% as the NBA PA did, uh, every couple of years, <laughs> that's not a sustainable model. And I don't know, while the people who've, who've criticized me, like I welcome criticize, criticism, like my feelings not hurt. I played cornerback in the NFL. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm fine with the heat. But what, what no one else is really doing is coming up with a better route. Like people accept that, that there's a power asymmetry and the, the leverage is on the, the owner's side. And they know that. And then they say, but decertification is crazy. No one's ever better off without a union. And I, I fundamentally agree with them. Like most people aren't better off without a union. But then I go to the next question. It's like, well, then 
how do you fight against the fact that you have a population of guys who will have three-year careers and have no money, want that money, against a guy, guys who have billions of dollars, like in, in actual liquid cash, some of them have like billions of dollars and can withstand and will own their teams. They won't have three years careers. They will own their teams for 50 years or wherever, even longer than that, and then give them to their kids. Like, how do you deal with that? And not only do they have that, but they have connections and influence over all of the TV networks and how they cover the lockout. And not only do they have that, they have they have money. So that means that they have political influence. Like when I start throwing all those things at people and say, so then how do you address this? That's where we run into a roadblock. So I'm not here saying that this that decertification is the silver bullet. I'm saying that it is the silverest, uh, silveriest of all bu- bullets. Just made up a new word. Yeah, I mean, I think you and I see similarities in terms of uh, frustrations and past bargaining and and challenges certainly ahead. I'm not ready to go there with decertification. I do think we had a taste of uh, a system without a cap and without some of these rules. If you remember, you obviously involved in 2010, which is when it was called a stub year where the CBA was expiring. And according to the rules, there was no cap. So 2010, no cap, the ideal is owners are going to spend like crazy. Well, they didn't. And what no cap means is not only no ceiling, but no floor. And you had teams like the Panthers and a few others were spending, I don't know, $80 million on players, $90 million on a collective payroll. So, yeah, obviously, if you get rid of a union, you're going to get rid of a lot of these things, but you're going to leave these owners out there to do what they do. And yes, of course, maybe they'll be bidding for those few pot of gold guys. But uh, as you and I know, they'll squeeze the bottom end. Yeah, I mean, I certainly know and understand and agree with that. So the one-year situation, I mean, we talked about how the owners all work together. I think if we go forward without a cap, that would not be how things continued going forward. So I'm not sure that the stub year is uh, – I mean, it's the best thing we have, but I don't know that it is a actual accurate uh, representation of what happened if we actually removed the cap. But what what could end up happening is what happened, and I guess it was '93 when the players were forced to, or not forced, but as a condition of the settlement of the antitrust case, the the Reggie White case that the players won, uh, the NFL required them to reform a union, and right. I would be willing, and I mean, it's essentially part of negotiation sometimes comes down to this game of chicken where it's like, all right, will you want to go for it without uh, a cap and without a floor? Who's more scared of that future, the players or the owners? And if the owners are more scared of that future, what will come with the settlement, a settlement agreement, and to keep it out of court is the the expectation that the players reform a union. Uh, and then the players will say, sure, we will give you back your antitrust um, exemptions, but we will require X, Y, Z. Like, I, I just don't know right. how else you create any uh, other leverage. And if they want to continue to go forward uh, with an association rather than a union, I think the players would be willing to do that and willing to go forward with that and see what happens. And and if they are, and like I mentioned earlier in the pieces, maybe, like I said, it's high risk. And maybe the players don't want that risk. Maybe they're happy with being uh, 
locked up for essentially six years once they enter the league and maybe they're happy with um, franchise tags. And I know it sounds a little flippant, like I'm being kind of facetious, but I'm not like I, I no, played I in the NFL it. under I these rules. It. Like I made good money. I'm completely happy with the amount of money I have and the life that I have. So I'm not saying that players should um, be furious about this. I'm disappointed because I know the sacrifices that were made to get the games that the players have. So I'm disappointed watching across all sports, the players share a dwindle and it going more and more to the guys who are not putting their bodies out there, but maybe the players don't want that. But if the players do want more, I think that's, that's the crux of where I'm coming from is so often I read and as someone who participated in the last CBA, so often I read about players who are upset about the amount of money that they're getting and then let's do it. <laughs> if you, if you are ready for it, uh, I think that's what Richard was saying. It's like, if, if you guys really want more, we need to go and get our hands dirty and we need to sacrifice. And, and uh, so I agree with Richard's sentiment in that it's like, all right, if you guys want to talk all this, then you got to be about it. Um, however, I don't necessarily agree with the strategy. I think that the cert feels uh, a little bit more strategic than, um, or helpful than uh, striking at this point. And I think, you know, you and I have talked about this in terms of priorities. There's a lot thrown out around there about what should the, you know, every time you have a Roger Goodell issue, you see the group think, say, well, they got to go after the owner, the commissioner power in bargaining. Every time you see, you know, a Kirk Cousins restrained from talking to new teams for three years, they got to go after franchise tag. Uh, they got to go after drug policy. They got to go after marijuana. I mean, I think it's all about priorities. We know the owner's priority. Their priority yeah. is money and profitability. And I think sometimes the owners will see blood in the water when, when they see all these different things out there. Uh, and it's all about prioritizing a, a negotiating strategy, whether it's the one you're identifying or not. I just think sometimes it gets too jumbled. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think prioritizing the strategy or prioritizing um, articles, so to speak, and the CBA to attack is for the the active players and their leadership to figure out. That is right. not at all what I'm talking about as much as I'm talking about how do you actually get those priorities. Like you can't right. – I don't know. I'm, I'm running out of reasonable analogies, but you, no, they're you, good. Can't, uh, you can't go into a store and like – I have a wish list on my Amazon account where it's like, all right, I wish for all these things, but I got to go out and make some money in order to purchase these things. It's the same similar analogy. Like we can prioritize all we want that we want to attack article 46 or we want to attack the drug policy or we want more money. Like we can prioritize it all we want, but if we don't do the work on the outside to get the money uh, again with this, with my um, bad analogies or to get the, the leverage that we need to get it, then who cares about your priorities? That's just a, just a wish list. It's been really interesting. I guess my last question is, have you heard either in writing it or since writing it from union leadership, uh, any unions, but I obviously split specifically NFL, PA, uh, about your piece? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, I, I have a good relationship with all the people at um, both the NFL and NBA, PA, mm -hmm. places that I, I've worked recently. Um I sent out a, a email heads up just because I I wanted them to know that I was writing it, uh, and nobody seemed upset by it. Like I think it's a it's a, a thought provoking piece if nothing else, and it'll, I think hopefully players it'll get into the hands of players and players will uh, it'll 
it'll force them, not that they aren't doing this, I don't mean this to discredit any of the major unions, but it will, if players get their hands on it and players see that there are kind of different approaches out there, it'll force the leadership of the union to to do what you said and kind of have a clear, cohesive uh, plan going forward to present to the players rather than just like, we have to be strong, we have to be united. Like, those things are true. However, <laughs> that's... And, in some respect, that's just lip service. Like we, what are we going to do with our strength and our unity? And um, the problem is locking out or being locked out or striking is, is the logical leap. Like that's what strength and unity, that's where the value is. But as I laid out in the piece, this isn't uh, any other union where you might have a 30 year career at the organization. So you being, you going on strike for, for six months is, hugely painful to you but you will enjoy the benefits of that for 30 years to come (laughs) and that six months while um the company again to the point that the nfl is a monopoly so there's no competition you know what would be really scary if we could say we're going on a strike and we're going on strike and nfl would be like uh well the cfl is going to move in on our market share so we can't afford to allow you guys to do that so Mm -hmm. what do you need two percent sure like that's not a, that's not a real thing that happens in in America because they're allowed to exist as a monopoly. So I don't know. I'm I'm dragging us back into the conversation when I could feel that you were trying to close us out. So I, I will <laughs> I will shut up about this. But it's something I'm passionate about, and it's something that's uh, that's important to me. No, and I think what we share, and we've come at it from different backgrounds, but really a share of uh, serving the players the best possible ways. And and that, how do you get to that? And these are really thought-provoking conversations. It's up on the undefeated. ESPN's the undefeated now. Why decertification of the NFLPA and other unions could pay off big on Foxworth's All-22. I love talking to Dominic Foxworth. You have your own podcast as well, right? Oh, yeah. I just, um, just launched two episodes out. Uh, it's with Gatorade and uh, Gimlet Media. It's called The Secret to Victory. So the first episode uh, was with Peyton and Eli Manning. I interviewed them. Uh, second episode came out today, which is with Carl Anthony Towns. I interviewed them, and it's about while these uh, are great athletes who've had plenty of great successes, it's about their darkest times. So we hmm. talk about Peyton and Eli's rookie seasons and how they both were <laughs> really bad. Like Peyton set the record for most interceptions and talk about getting through that to the other side. So it's a highly produced 30-minute um, interview podcast with stories. So I interviewed Archie. I uh, interviewed Carl Anthony Towns, his parents. And uh, later on in the season, we have J.J. Watt, Kyle Schwarber, and, and we have Matt Ryan talking about that no. Super Bowl last year, which is interesting. And so I'm, I'm supposed to interview Matt's wife. Uh, I was <laughs> supposed to interview her at the same time that I was supposed to talk with you today, but Andrew Brandt trumps all. So I rescheduled <laughs> that interview with her for, for later. So um, it's a, it's been really fun doing it. It's a lot harder than I thought it would be, but I certainly – I uh, would encourage your listeners, if they want to hear these, to download or wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to The Secret to Victory. Rate it five stars only because I'm amazing and write a review. <laughs> you are amazing. And again, the best thing about media, I think, in recent years, and I'm toot my own horn, but I think bringing voices with experience, with credibility, with knowledge, taking people behind the ropes, inside the curtain, whatever you want to call it. You're certainly one of those. Dom, thanks for being with me. We'll do it again soon. Always, Andrew. Thank you so much. And I appreciate uh, opportunities that we can talk when we aren't um, 
little bit behind, go even further behind the scenes. And even before I wrote this piece, and Andrew and I had a couple conversations. So I appreciate that counsel, and um, and I hope we can continue it. No, we don't. We will. We will definitely do that. Thanks again, Dominique. All right. I'll uh, I'll close. Okay. Go ahead. Thanks again to my friend Dominic Foxworth of ESPN's The Undefeated. Provocative, thought-provoking piece out there. We really got into it. And all issues involving union, league, negotiations, CBA strikes, etc. Listen to all my podcasts on RossTucker.com, iTunes, Stitcher. Tune in wherever you hear your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brand. I'll be back next week with another edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brand. Thanks for listening to The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.